You'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. appreciate those songs, Brian, because a lot of them are about the resurrection of the saints, that in his resurrection we are raised and will be raised. That's what we're looking at today at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 15 through 18, if you turn your Bibles there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. But I'll go ahead and read, start in verse 13 and read through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we've been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and last week we looked at verses 13 and 14, and we saw that Paul grounded their hope, their hope for uh, afterlife, that, the, that the, those who have died in Christ will be raised, that he grounded that hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that there in verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We saw that Paul sought to give them comfort. We see that there in verse 18. As their brothers and sisters in Christ died, and he sought to do it through information. We see that in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. So Paul is seeking to give them information about the resurrection, about its manner, how it comes with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we will look at Paul's second point of comfort. And that is, I think, can be summed up in this way, the manner of the coming resurrection. That it will take place, the resurrection of the saints will take place at Christ's coming. So we saw in verse 14 the grounds of their resurrection, that, that they are raised with Christ. They believe that, we believe that Jesus rose, then even so, in a, in a similar way, God will raise bodily those with him, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So now we come to the, the, way, the manner in which it will happen. The, the, he gives us information about the timing of the resurrection and that it takes place at the coming of Christ. In other words, in verse 15, Paul proceeds to describe what bringing with him means. In verse 14, it says, God will bring with him. So Paul goes into verse 15 to describe what that means. This is how it will happen. This is what that means. And we see that in the word at the beginning of verse 15. For this we say to you. So he's explaining what he had said in verse 14. So starting there in verse 15, we see that Paul begins by saying, I'm going to tell you this. We say this to you. By the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. So Paul is revealing something that Jesus had communicated to him. That Jesus said. Now there are, some, there are several possibilities that we, could, we can look at as far as what Paul means by this. It could mean that 
Jesus had said something in his ministry that is recorded in the Gospels. Although we don't have anything that, that approximates this in the Gospels. So it could mean that Jesus, it, it, this is a part of the oral tradition, that, that Jesus said it in his ministry, but that it was not recorded in the Gospels. In John 21, 25, John says, there are many other things that Jesus did, and they, if we were to write them down, they would fill up all the books in the world. So it is possible that Jesus said this in his ministry, and then it wasn't recorded. So that's a second option. Third is that Paul could be teaching by the Holy Spirit with the authority of the Lord. We see Paul do this in other places. That Paul is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ with the authority of the Christ behind him. And he's doing this by the Holy Spirit. So that is another possibility. Or the fourth possibility is that Paul is giving direct revelation that he gained from the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus Christ told Paul about his coming and Paul is communicating that to the Thessalonians. That is what I think is most likely because in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the same thing, the coming of Christ, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And so this mystery often, as we see in Ephesians chapter 3, is something that Paul gains, is a a communication, a revelation from the Lord to Paul. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery. And he goes on to talk about the Gentiles being a part of the church. So I think it's most likely that Paul gained this word from the Lord from a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And he says elsewhere that he gained his gospel that he preaches from Christ himself. So Paul uh, is giving us, whatever way it is communicated to Paul, it is clear that Paul is giving us the authoritative word of the Lord. This is not Paul guessing. This is not Paul saying, you know it would be cool. No, he's communicating to us, this is what Jesus says. This is what will happen. This will be the manner of his coming. And so Paul goes on to place the resurrection of the saints at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His point here is that the dead in Christ will not be an afterthought. They will not be resurrected later. That Christ won't come and, and, and set up his reign or, or continue it in judgment with the people who are alive. And then the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus happens later. But Paul says that the, the, those who are asleep in Christ will be raised first. And they will be caught up with those still alive to meet the Lord in the air. Now interestingly, commentators are divided about what is comforting about this passage. Paul clearly, you see in verse 18 and in verse 13... I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope, that Paul is wanting to communicate comfort, hope, that they are grieving clearly over the death of their loved ones uh, who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so, but commentators are divided over what is he communicating that is comforting. Some say that the focus on this passage is the coming of Christ and the comfort that comes with, the, with expecting his return. Uh, that that the expecting Christ's return gives you comfort. Others say that the focus is on the resurrection of the saints at the coming of Christ. In other words, that Paul's focus is on those who have fallen asleep in Jesus and their resurrection. And he's saying this is going to happen at the coming of Christ. So the comfort comes from knowing when you will see and be reunited with your brothers and sisters who have died. I think it is more of the latter. I think Paul is focusing on the resurrection of the saints because of his emphasis on, on those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He says it twice 
in verse in verse 15 he says those who have fallen asleep will not proceed or sorry those who remain those who are alive will not proceed those who have fallen asleep then in verse 16 the dead in Christ will rise first so his focus seems to be on that those who are dead in Christ will not be forgotten. They will not, they will not be set aside in preference to the ones who are alive. In fact, the ones who are dead will have preference. They will be raised first. And so Paul seems to be emphasizing this resurrection of the saints. So put it another way, I think Paul is essentially saying this. Let me give you hope and comfort by describing the next time you will see your loved one who has died. I think that's what Paul's doing, and I think we see that there in verse 17. They, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So I think Paul is saying, take comfort, brother, take comfort, sister, that the, your loved one who has died, you will see them at the second coming of Christ. And they won't be an afterthought, but they will, they will precede you there. Almost as if they were given the place of honor. That they will be caught up first, and you will meet them there, and there your reunion will be in the clouds. So I think Paul's emphasis here, because it is, he's talking about hope and comfort, is on giving them an, an idea or a picture of when they will see their loved ones again. Now this is not to say that the coming of Christ is not comforting. It is. Or that we should not have hope in the, com- in the coming of Christ. But I think Paul's particular point here seems to be more on what takes place at his coming more than on the fact of his coming. That, that those dead in Christ will be resurrected at his return. So then Paul goes on to describe the manner of Christ's coming with a shout there in verse 16, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ arise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up to, together with them to meet them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. Verse 17 there where it says, caught up. That is where we get the word rapture, that caught up there. The, the, the Greek translated to Latin is where we get the word rapture from the Latin for caught up. And so this passage has long been understood by some to teach the doctrine of the rapture. That is, briefly, the doctrine of the rapture is the belief that Christ will come to take believers home to heaven before his wrath, God's wrath, is poured out on the earth. That Christ will then return after a tribulation, which is the wrath poured out on the earth, to set up his millennial reign of a thousand years. These verses are referencing, in, in, the, in those who hold this doctrine, these verses are referencing Christ's first coming when he comes for his people and not the second coming when he comes to reign on the earth. They say that partly because in verse 17 it says that we meet the Lord in the air, that he comes down to the air, he receives his people to himself, and then he goes to heaven. And then after the end of seven years tribulation, he comes back down to earth and he establishes his millennial reign. So in the first, he stops in the air. In the second, he comes all the way down to the earth. This view, this understanding of the rapture, is variously known as dispensationalism or pre-tribulational premillennialism. Those are long words. Or popularly um, communicated in those left-behind books, if you've seen those left-behind books. Before we go any further in talking about the rapture, and we'll, we'll see how it, it, it is important in a moment, before we go any further, talk about the doctrine of the rapture, there are a couple of disclaimers I want to make. Number one, we need to be careful when we're talking about eschatology particularly, and uh, other doctrines that we're not, in, in scripture, um, that we are careful to understand that there are faithful men and women on both sides. That doesn't apply to all doctrines, of course, but there are doctrines that 
are not first order, they're not the gospel, they're not the, the character of God, they're not the character of Christ or the person work of Christ, but they are more secondary, and I would see this in there, that we can, we can agree to disagree on eschatology, we can have some questions about the, how the, the end will come, but we have to remember that there are faithful men for and against the rapture. To give you a couple of examples, MacArthur, John MacArthur would teach in, he would teach the doctrine of the rapture, that, that Jesus comes to meet his people in the air and he takes them back to heaven. Whereas someone like R.C. Sproul would be on the other side. He would, he would teach that Jesus comes, meets his people in the air, and continues down to earth and sets up his millennial reign. So that's the first disclaimer. We need to make sure that we understand that there are faithful men and women for and against the rapture. They're on both sides. Number two, this should not be something to divide over. The important thing is to affirm that Jesus is coming back. That's the important thing. How he will, uh, uh, to some extent we know, to some extent we don't know. When he will, we don't know. What happens afterwards, there's some debate on that. But we need to be careful that we affirm that Jesus is coming back. That is clear. And those who are, teach the rapture and those who are against the rapture or do not teach the rapture, both affirm that Jesus is coming back. And so we are unified on that. So, to the question, is this passage a reference to the rapture, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Well, yes, in a way. Because that word rapture means caught up. So it is there. There is a rapture of the saints. But the question more so, is this a reference to the pre-tribulational rapture as opposed to the second coming of Christ? So is this, in essence, a, a, a in-between coming? You have the first coming when he came as a baby. You have this rapture of the church in between. And then you have the second coming later on when he comes to judge and set up his millennial reign. Is there an in-between coming called the rapture? Well, I don't think so for several reasons. And we could look at a lot of scripture. Uh, we can look, go through the New Testament. But I want to give you reasons why uh, I don't think this is the rapture of the church based on the text here in front of us. That this is indeed not the rapture of the church, but it is the second coming that is in reference here. That these verses are describing when Jesus comes finally and ultimately to establish his reign and to judge the earth. The first reason I don't think this is a pre-tribulational rapture is the use of parousia in the scripture. That word parousia in the Greek is there in verse 15, translated as coming. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. If we look at how the coming of the Lord is described through scripture, I think we see it more uh, support the second coming rather than a pre-tribulational rapture. Look there in verse chapter 3, verse 13. This is the word parousia that is used here in the same book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Then you see it used there in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. I think it makes more sense to see these passages as referring to the second coming because both seem to suggest judgment. These, these are suggesting judgment. Not necessarily, not that the, the saints will be judged and cast to hell, but that they will be shown in the judgment to that they are without blame and they are in, in, in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. That, that Paul's hope and joy and crown of exaltation makes sense in the context of judgment. So that you will be in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming as showing yourself to be true believers. 
and show true fruit of my ministry. And so there's my crown of exaltation at the judgment of our Savior. So I think both of these passages make, more, make better sense of the final coming of Christ rather than this in, in the middle uh, rapture of the saints. Now, dispensationalists are those who would hold to the rapture um, before the second coming. They would look at verse 13 of chapter 3 as a reference to the second coming. And the reason they would say that is because it says, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, with all his saints. So they say, how could Jesus come to earth with his saints unless he had already got them? So previously he had got them in the rapture, and then he comes in the second coming with all his saints to establish his reign. But I think the problem with that is that if you understand verse 13 to be the, to be the second coming, then what makes you jump to verse 17 to, or sorry, verse 15 in the next chapter to say that this is the rapture. I think they would have to be the same coming. I think both of them would have to be the same thing. I don't think Paul is jumping from one to the other. They are both the second coming of our Lord. Also, that, that verse 13, you can translate it with all his saints with, to, to say, with all his holy ones, with all his holy ones. And so that fits better with Matthew uh, 25, where it says that Jesus comes with all his holy angels, with all his angels. So it may be that Paul is saying here that the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his angels, with all his holy ones. 1 Corinthians 15, which I read earlier, is also a reference to the second coming, which is, but is often translated or interpreted as a reference to rapture. Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So see, it sounds similar to 1 Thessalonians that those who are Christ at his coming will be resurrected uh, just like Jesus was resurrected. And notice the next verse, verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And so I think it makes better sense to see this as a reference to the second coming because Christ comes back that the saints are resurrected as 1 Thessalonians is talking about. Then right after it, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God to the God and Father. So there's no rapture and then seven years and then all these things. It's he comes back, boom, the end. I think it makes more sense to understand his coming here as a reference to the final second coming and not to the rapture. Then Matthew 24, Jesus' is teaching. Matthew 24, verse 3. You remember the disciples ask Jesus, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they say to him, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And I think as you go through this passage and chapter, you'll see that Jesus puts those two together, his coming and the end of the age, that his coming is essentially at the end, that there is no intermediate time. And you see this verses 27 through 30 as well. Jesus says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And so you see here in Matthew 24 this reference to the trumpet that this tribulation comes on the earth and then, and then Jesus comes and returns and with a great, as the trumpet sounds, he gathers his elect from the four winds. That there is no reference to an in-between coming where he takes the church out before the time of tribulation. There's a tribulation immediately followed by the coming of Christ. And then finally, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Now we request, request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word, parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, which we've already seen in 1 Thessalonians, what he means by that there. We're gathered together when he comes that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I think he references there the day of the Lord is the day of his return uh, for his people and in judgment. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So you see the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ here is clearly after the tribulation after the Antichrist, who is the man of lawlessness, and the apostasy happens. So Christ will not come back, including our gathering together with him, until after that happens. So I think it's better to understand in First Thessalonians, our passage, that this is a reference to the second coming of Christ and not to a pre-tribulational rapture. So that's the first reason. If we look at the use of parousia or the coming of Christ through Scripture, and there are other passages we can look at if we had time, you'll see that I think there is more consistently understood to be after the tribulation, at the second coming of Christ. Number two, second reason. In verse 16 of our passage, we see a shout, a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The, some of the dispensational um, theologians view, would, would review this passage as what they would call a secret rapture, meaning that it is only for the people of God, that the people of God hear the trumpet and they are called to Christ in the air. But I think this verse 16 actually is, is, is showing a public rapture, not a secret one, that this, this shout over all the earth and this voice of the archangel and this trumpet of God all are heralding the end, the end when, when Christ comes to judge the world. If we look at the use of trumpet in scripture, which we'll look at a couple of places here in a moment. It fits better with the judgment of God come on the earth and it's in the shout and the trumpet and the voice goes over all the earth. The end is here. Not only the believers hear it, but all hear it. We saw there in Matthew 24, 31, the use of the trumpet, that it happens after the tribulation and that he, he, the trumpet blows and he, he gathers his elect from the four winds. We also see in Matthew 24, that same chapter, that the elect are present during the tribulation. Matthew 24, 22 and 24. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In verse 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 
and then it ends that section, verse 31. With a great trumpet, they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. And so looking at this voice of the archangel with a trumpet in the, in the, in the uh, shout, I think it makes, sense to, to, makes better sense to put it with the second coming, which comes, takes place after the tribulation, in which the, the um, elect of God are called to meet Christ in the air to escort him down to earth, which we'll say more on in a moment. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I read at the beginning of the, of the service, 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you a mystery, we will all, not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So here's a reference to the trumpet, and I think it makes sense again here in the context that this is the end, this is the final judgment, because we have death swallowed up in victory, but death has lost its sting, that, that we have final victory, verse 57, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we are looking toward that final judgment, that end of death. And that takes place at the coming of Christ. My final reason for uh, thinking that this is not a reference to the rapture, but is a reference to the second coming, in our text is in verse 17, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the dispensational thinking is that if this is... Christ coming to set up his reign, that this is the end, this is the judgment, then why is he met in the air? Their view is that we meet in the air because Jesus is kind of poking his head into the clouds, essentially, and saying, come up, come up, family, come up, church, and then he goes back to heaven, and he protects them from the tribulation that will come on the earth. But if we look at that word meet there in verse 17, it is used only three times in the New Testament, here and two other places. And both other times that is, that is used, it refers to people going out and meeting somebody and escorting them back in. So Matthew 25, verse 6, this is the, the um, parable of the virgins and the bridegroom. You remember, they, some, some foolish ones didn't have oil and some had oil. And the foolish one said, can I take some of your oil? And they said, no, it won't have enough for us. Go buy some. And so the foolish ones go buy oil, and while they're gone, the bridegroom comes, and the ones who had oil, they go out and they greet him, and they go into the wedding. So there's a picture of going out and greeting him and coming back in and escorting him in. Then in Acts 28, verse 15, we have the word used again, and it is in reference to people who hear Paul is coming to Rome, and so they leave Rome, they go out and meet him and escort him back into Rome. So I think here that the word uh, meet is a reference to the the, the God or Christ calling his people to himself, that the church and those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive meet Christ in the air, and then they escort him, in essence, to come down and establish his judgment and his reign, his just rule on the earth. I think that makes better sense of the text, looking with other texts that describe the second coming, to see this as him as us meeting them and coming down to earth. I think also that fits with Paul's purpose here in this text to show them here's comfort, here is hope, in that Jesus will not come without a resurrection. He will not just come and set up his reign. Meanwhile, the the dead in Christ are just 
still dead. No, that not only that, they will, be, will they be resurrected, but they will be resurrected to meet him, and as a place of honor, they would escort him into his kingdom. And so I think that fits better with Paul's point here. They will meet him, and then in effect, they will be first to enter the kingdom with him, with you, following behind who are alive and remain. There are other reasons to think that this is the second coming and not the rapture, but for time, and, and, and I don't want to get into a rabbit holes in other passages, but these are, the pa- these are the reasons in the text why I think this is more a reference to the second coming. But we have to be careful here because often this passage is read in regards to the second, or, sorry, in regards to the rapture, or even in discussion about the second coming, and the whole point of the text is missed. That there is comfort, that there is that this here, this, this truth is a means to grieve with hope. But if I am right, and this passage does not support the doctrine of the rapture before the time of the tribulation, would this, would this not be comfort? Would this be comforting? How would this be comforting? And how would it fit with chapter 5, verse 9? Look at chapter 5, verse 9. This is a text that is used by dispensationals to support the rapture. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does it fit with that? And then how would it be comforting if there is no resurrection of the saints before the great tribulation? Then how would that be comforting? Well, first, I think it's comforting because Paul is pointing to their reunion in verse 17. I think that's Paul's main point. Grieve with hope. Be comforted because you will meet them in the clouds. You, that's, when, that's the next time you will see them. Let me describe for you that joyous occasion when you will see them with your Lord Jesus Christ and you and your loved one will be first there as the kingdom is brought in to the earth. So I think that's Paul's comfort. Critics would point out that if they were to live through the tribulation, how would they be comforted? How would these people be comforted if they understood that this is not them being raptured out before the tribulation, but they would live through the tribulation unto the second coming? How would that be comforting? Well, I think this misses the point of Paul's teaching. They are grieving. They, they, they need comfort because of the death of their loved ones. The question, of their, the, the, the question that's facing them, that they're wrestling with, that they're sorrowing over is, what's become of my brother and sister in Christ? Well, I think Paul is saying, I want to give you this information to see their destiny. This is what happens to them. They will be resurrected and meet the Lord in the air, as will you. They will not be forgotten. They will not be an afterthought. You will not reign with Christ for a thousand years, and then they are resurrected. But you see them right away. They are first. So their comfort is in the destiny, what happens to their brothers and sisters in Christ who have died. Secondly, as I mentioned, how can Christians go through the tribulation when God has not destined them for wrath? Chapter 5, verse 9. But I think the two are not mutually exclusive. God can allow the church to go through the tribulation without coming under the wrath of God. So God can protect his people in the, in the earth as the tribulation rages, just as he protected the Israelites during the plagues of Egypt. That God protects them from his wrath, but at the same time, they, they, he does allow that the, 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 the Antichrist persecutes the church. And so we have persecution on a grand scale, which makes sense of, of Jesus' teaching 
on the Mount of Olives. There will be tribulation. They will drag you before the authorities. I think all that makes best sense in light of the Great Tribulation, that Christians, the church, will go through the tribulation, but they will be protected from the wrath of God from those supernatural plagues that God will pour out on the earth. And so finally, wherever you land on the rapture, we must be careful, as I mentioned, not to just focus on eschatology. We don't just read verses 15 through 17 and say, okay, now I can get, get an idea of what happens and I can make a chart and all these things and figure out when the rapture is coming and who the Antichrist is. Don't miss Paul's point in writing this passage. I think his main point is in verse 17 and 18. His last two phrases, last two statements. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. One commentator says, often this passage is used almost exclusively in eschatology discussions. What's the last time and what's the last things and when's it going to happen and what are the signs and all these things when really this passage is more at home in the funeral home. When people are grieving, when they're suffering, when they're wondering, what about my brother and sister? What about them? This is comfort. This is practical comfort. Is it not just, is it not just making sure you got your chart correct on the end times? It is about comfort here. And we saw that in verse 13 as well. I want you to grieve with hope, brothers. So what is the comfort that Paul is offering? I think it's there in verse 17. Again, we shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. Well, how do we know that, Josh? How, how, is this, how does this give us comfort? We see this, we hear him say that, but how do I know it's true? And how, how, can, I, how can I see it? It's truth. Well, as we talked about in Sunday school, we live between two unalterable truths. Two unalterable truths. Jesus was resurrected. And all those in him have been resurrected with him. That is an unalterable truth. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who has put their faith in him, they, looking at his resurrection, see their own as well. The other truth, Jesus will come again. And where we have been resurrected spiritually in his, resurrected, in his resurrection, when he comes again, he will resurrect us physically. And so we, leave, we live between these two truths. And in fact, we travel between these two truths, don't we? We're moving toward that. Whether you are alive when Christ comes back or whether you were dead, this, as a Christian, is your destiny. Well, how do I know that, Josh? Look this way. That's what Paul does in verse 14. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You know that this is true. You know that this will certainly and surely take place. It is unalterable because this resurrection of Christ has surely and certainly taken place. So you can know that this, the coming of Christ 
is sure and certain. And because God has communicated to us, we know what's going to happen then. We know what's going to happen. You stand at the empty tomb and you look at the coming of Christ and you say, I'm going to see my grandfather who died in him. I'm going to see my wife. I'm going to see my husband. I'm going to see my mother. I'm going to see my father. I know I will. Why? Because this happened. And because he's communicating to me, and, and, and I, he is faithful and true to do what he has promised, I know because he's already done it, that this will happen. Is that comforting to anybody? Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. It should be. So don't misunderstand me. We can get an understanding of what the, uh, like I have a view on whether this is the rapture or this is his second coming, but don't miss what he's saying. Christ coming in either of those cases is a wonderful comfort because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live between these two unalterable truths, then they're unalterable because God himself is unalterable. Makes me think of a prayer I read recently. Jesus with him, before him, behind him. Jesus in him, beneath him, above him. Jesus on his right, Jesus on his left, Jesus when he sleeps, Jesus when he wakes, Jesus in the heart of everyone who thinks of him, Jesus in the mouth of everyone who speaks of him, Jesus in the eye of everyone who sees him. But another way, what is your only comfort in life and death? This is in our catechism. That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Preach, brother. That's in our confession, written in the 1500s. Put simply, my comfort, your comfort, Christian, is Jesus all around us, now and forever. How is he all around us? Past, future, present. You see him in your salvation. You see him in his resurrection. You see your own resurrection. You see him by his Holy Spirit within you. You see him moving you toward this certain and sure destiny. And you say, Jesus is everywhere I look. Every time I have a fear, a doubt, an uncertainty, if death is coming up in my face and, I'm, and I'm, I have all these fears and doubts and, and darkness and the world's telling me this and this telling me this and I can say, no, Jesus. There's my hope. I will always be with the Lord. I don't know what the trumpet's going to sound like. I don't know what the voice of the archangel is going to sound like. I don't know what the antichrist is going to be like. I don't know all the ins and outs. I don't know what kind of tribulation or persecution the church is going to come to. But Jesus is everywhere. He's in my past, my present, my future. He's in my day-to-day -day life. He upholds me. Comfort Friend, your comfort is Jesus Christ. 
Would you be with Christ always? Would you be with the Lord always? Look at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. I read 9 earlier. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep verse here. Who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That is going to happen. We know what he means by awake or asleep, because we see there in, in our passage today. He means whether you are alive or you are dead. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are united by faith with him, God's wrath will not fall on you. Verse 9. You will have salvation through him. So whether you die before he comes back, or whether you are still alive, you will live together with him. There is no way that that will be changed. God will do it. Turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. What does it mean to be with the Lord? I think partly it means verse 16. Sorry, the beginning of verse 16. That he continually grants you peace in every circumstance. We being humans, we face things that we have so little knowledge about. We are so ignorant about. We have fears about our health. Things that, are, that, that even the experts have no knowledge of. Or only a small knowledge of. We stand before things that, 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 are, that are huge and terrifying and from a worldly view like death. Are we meant to look within ourselves? Are we meant to look in the world? Are we meant to go to the library and just read books and books and books to say, if only I can get a handle on this, if I can just see into this great unknown, then I won't be so fearful. All along, God is saying, know me. Don't put your hope on knowing what happens there. Don't put your hope on figuring out when, the, when, the, when Jesus is coming back and what you're going to do when the Antichrist comes in and piling up enough food and, and drink and everything to, to, to go into a bunker. Don't put your hope on that. Put your hope in me. That's the great unknown. There's a lot of unknown out there because you are merely human. But I have revealed myself to you and I am greater than all. You will live forever with me. So focus on who you will live forever with. Your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where your hope is. And so I say that partly to say, you don't have to wait till then. You don't look to that time and say, well, that'd be nice when I can live forever with him, when I can be with him, and he can grant me peace in every circumstance. Paul is saying that that could be now. Yes, you still have sickness. Yes, you still have death. Yes, you still have fear. Yes, you still have sin. But God in Christ has destined you for that. And by his spirit, he is, he is making you for that. He is 
freeing you from sin. He has given you hope and strength and comfort. Paul is writing this to them so that they can be comforted now. So they can have hope in the midst of their grief now. So brother, sister, look at the resurrection of Christ. Look at the promises of God that you live between these two truths and take comfort now. Take peace now, no matter what you are facing. I don't know what this is, but I know him. And he knows all. And he's sovereign over all. And he will do what he has promised. So you're facing death. You can say, I don't know what that's going to be like coming into that. But look at the coming of Christ. Look at that. I don't know what happens in here. Right? I don't know what the, it was going to feel like. And, and I don't, I, we don't have a lot of evidence. We don't have people coming back and describing all these things. And will it be painful? No, but I know the other side. I know the other side. Those who have family members facing death, you can say, as they die, you can say, I will be reunited with them in the clouds. That is sure. And so I'm going to take comfort then and say, I'll see you on the other side. I told a story last time, Peter Marshall. He told a story about a, a young man who was facing death and his mother described to him as him falling asleep and his father gathering up in his arms and taking him to the next room and him waking up in his own bed and not knowing how he got there but that, that his mother described to him that's what death is like that, that God just picks you up and takes you into the next room and so you're on the other side Peter Marshall himself the preacher who told that story later died of a heart condition and he told his wife before they took him into surgery I'll see you, I'll see you, honey. I'll see you in the morning. And he meant, I'll see you on the other side. Now, he could have meant the next day, but it ends up he died on the table. And she understood him to say that he understood he was going to be in heaven. He'd see her on the other side. He'd see her in the morning. That's having a certain, sure knowledge of your destiny. That is a man who is informed, verse 13. He holds that knowledge as his anchor. God will do it. There's a lot I don't know about, but I know this. And so I'm going to hold tight to that. And though the waves may assault me, may all these fears pile up on me, I'll say, no, I know what he has said. He will certainly and surely do it because look what he has done. I'll hold tight to him and I'll wake up in the morning on the other side. As we transition to a time of communion, the deacons will get up and get the elements together. This is a time for believers to hold the bread and the wine in the same way that Paul tells them to hold the second coming, the coming of Christ. You hold the bread and the wine and you look at the death you look at the penalty paid for our sins and you say, here's my hope. Here's my salvation. Apart from this, I am lost. And so this is a time for us, in essence, to act out a sermon. So this is a time for believers, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, to say, his death for my death, his life for mine. I have died with him and I, will, and I was raised with him spiritually and I will be raised with him physically. 
So we ask if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in him to save you from the wrath of God on sinners, we ask that you let it pass you by, that you don't take the bread, you don't take the wine, which, by the way, is non-alcoholic wine, just for case you're wondering. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So looking back at the certain and sure, the, 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 the absolute truth that Jesus was raised and all those in him are raised and will be raised. You must believe what happened before that he died and he, and he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The scriptures there could be referencing is, is Isaiah 53, that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. That we, we like sheep, have gone astray, turning to his own way, but God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So you are a follower of Christ. You are a Christian if you have put your faith in the death of Christ as payment for your sin, as the, as the substitutionary atonement for your sins to appease, to satisfy the wrath of God. You say, that I have my faith in. That is the only thing that can remove the, the, my sins from me, remove the penalty of sin from me to save me from death is only the atoning death of Christ. If I would be raised with Christ, I must be united to him in faith. And so... The wine represents his blood shed for you. The bread represents his body broken for you. If you are a follower of Christ and you hold these and you exult in them, you glory in them. The first Christians were thought to be cannibals because they were eating the body and blood of Christ. No, these only represent the body and blood of Christ. But do we eat the body and blood of Christ in a way? Yes, spiritually, that's our meat and drink. That is our life. Apart from his death for us, we are lost. We are damned. And so we drink this wine and we eat this bread to remember Christ and to celebrate his sacrifice for us. And if you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Christ, I urge you, Repent of your sins and put your faith in him as your only hope of salvation in this life and the next. If you would hope to be resurrected, to meet your loved ones in the air, to meet your Savior in the air, you must be a Christian. You must be in him. We talked about that last week. Verse 14 says, Even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Meaning, they are Christians. They have trusted in him for salvation. They are not trusting in anything else. They're not trusting in Christ plus being a good person. Christ plus going to church. Christ plus stopping sin. They're trusting only in Christ. He is their full salvation. If that is you, this is your bread and wine. If it is not you, 
I urge you to come talk to me after the service. Let's talk about repentance and faith and, and trusting in him for your life in this, in this world and your life in the next. Has everyone gotten? Anyone else need any? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Father we glory in the cross of Christ we celebrate the death of your son, Jesus, and the resurrection of your son. Because you have you sent him, you sent him to die for sinful men and women. For those sinful men and women to be united to Christ and therefore through that be united to you. And so we hold up the blood and the body of, of our broken Savior, Jesus Christ, as the perfect substitute perfect sacrifice for our sins. Help us, Father, not to give into temptation to trying to work for salvation in addition to the work of Christ on the cross, to not defame the cross that way, to not try to add anything as we can't, to hold it alone, the cross, empty tomb, the death and the resurrection. Father, help us to take comfort from this passage in 1 Thessalonians. To see the reunion of the living saints and the ones that have died with our Savior Jesus Christ in the clouds. To escort him into his millennial reign with great rejoicing. As we are finally free from this body of death. Help us to take comfort as we face the prospect of losing our family, losing our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we look forward to the coming of Christ for that glorious reunion. But most of all, we look forward to being with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the presence of the one who has brought us with him, our glorious, sweet Savior, Jesus. Help us, Father, to understand that you have given us strength and comfort and hope all through this life. You mean to give us peace by your Son, no matter what we face. So we don't just check out of this sermon if we're not facing death. We don't just think, well, that's good for people who are facing death, but we think... We see that Jesus is, is, is there, is, is, is that we can live with him now 
not fully and finally free of sin, but we can have intimacy and sweetness and closeness with our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Because we live between those two unalterable truths, the resurrection and the resurrection. His and ours at His coming. Father, as Romans 6 says, let us live in light of the resurrection now. Let us live resurrected lives now. So that when the unknown comes, when death, when pain, sorrow, sickness comes, we say, so be it. Our God is good, he is faithful, and he will bring me with him. And thus we are comforted and we grieve in hope. All to the glory of your wonderful grace and the glory you revealed in your son, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray.